So yeah, um, yeah. Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Uh, today I'm here with Luke, and I didn't check how to pronounce your last name before I butcher it. So do you want to introduce yourself? <laughs> that is a tricky one. It's a very tricky last name, and I wouldn't blame you if you if you butchered it. Uh, it's Mikic, so it oh, has like a, I would have had but it it's right. spelled funny. <laughs> so it's spelled M I K I C. And obviously it's like got like a silent H on the end. So don't don't worry about it if you butcher it, mate. Everybody does. I'm used to it. That's right. Well, Luke Mickich. So uh yeah, man. I I was recommended to speak to you by uh Ben Wehrman, so shout out to Ben. Um and yeah, whenever someone recommends that I check someone out, I I usually do because it's it's interesting. And then yeah, I looked at your your page and you did some amazing interviews with some really cool people, man. So uh, I'm I'm excited to to sort of, sort of pick your brain on some stuff here. Yeah, firstly, thanks for that, dude. Um, I got a pretty easy gig. I just get to sit in front of the microphone and talk to far more interesting and far more smarter individuals than myself. So I really I relish the chance to have conversations uh, with all sorts of different people on my podcast. And um, yeah, big shout out to Ben. I think he's definitely going to go places in the future. He's a very smart young young fella. Yeah, yeah, he really is. He's a really switched on guy. Um, so, yeah, so the first thing that I guess I would like to speak to you, because this is something that Ben had mentioned to me, what is your case for Bitcoin? Just if if someone comes up to you and goes, right, okay, well, like, why why is this thing better than anything we've had before or any of the other 10 billion cryptocurrencies and altcoins and things like why this yeah it's, so my simplified kind of answer at a really high level for bitcoin i say um for five thousand years we've used forms of money that have been able to be co-opted uh, co and monopolized by either kings emperors rulers or today it's central bankers and big governments who have the ability to print money out of thin air. So for 5,000 years, we've had forms of money, whether it was gold, silver, copper, seashells, agri beads, um, or fiat currency, they've all been able to be co-opted. And they, they're all kind of operate on a monetary system where there are rulers who are able to change the rules. So that's the problem. And that's probably the largest problem we have in society today. And I'm sure we're going to break down all of the uh, negative consequences that uh, living on a fiat system for 50 years has caused to societies all across the world today. Uh, but at a really high level, Bitcoin fixes that. Bitcoin's the first money in human history that can't be controlled by anyone. And it affords every single person um, an equal set of rules. So Bitcoin's the first monetary system where there are no rulers. And that really is a very, very revolutionary thing. And it enables something that we've never, ever done before. And that's separate money from state. Um, so that's at a very high level. I'm sure we can get more granular than that. But um, that's why Bitcoin. Okay. Well, then I guess the, 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 first, the first question I would have for that would be, what is, why is that better to you than, than state-controlled money? Because like for me... There's, there are, in my mind at least, there are benefits to having like a state-controlled currency. Like it, it is a useful tool. I mean, not to blow smoke up China's ass because that's not a good idea. But um, <laughs> they're one example of where like more central control and planning in, say, terms of infrastructure can be really good for a country. Like they can make like big advancements and do big projects very quickly. Like whether 
whether the the means by which they're achieving those things are are good like the central planning aspect is is useful and they can fund it by just printing the money like why why is bitcoin why are the advantages of bitcoin better than that basically yeah, so I, I would firstly kind of um, slightly disagree with the Please ideology that do. <laughs> <laughs> we've all due respect. I would probably slightly disagree that central plan, uh, central planning is as beneficial as it is. That is very true that in China um, today, their version of central planning, they're able to redirect their resources a lot more efficiently than other uh, Western democratic countries that are operating on a welfare state. Um, but I would kind of... If I were to look back through human history, I would say the most productive and the most valuable periods of time um, for the economy and society was actually when we were operating under a sound money system where the money wasn't actually being debased and there was no central planning. So I would look at the uh, Roman Empire. They were the most successful empire in human history. And for 700 years, um, they used the same currency that was that didn't change um, until at the very end when they started debasing the, the silver coin that they were using, the silver denarius. Um, they started debasing that and um, 100 years later, the entire empire collapsed. Um, so that's one period of time that was obviously one of the most uh, productive for the Roman people. And then another one would be um, in the late 1800s um, and obviously the Renaissance as well in the 1600s um, um, when the when we were using the gold florin. Um, obviously you had 100 years of really good productivity and growth. And the same was true, I think it was in the 1800s when we were uh, operating under a kind of classical gold standard. I think there was a stretch of time for about 50 years between 1840 and 1890, um, where you saw um, increasing wages. Meanwhile, uh, the actual price of the everyday goods and, goods and services we were buying was actually decreasing. And that's a really, really, that shows the economy is really motoring, on, uh, motoring along very well. So, so I, I think... If I look back through history, I think the most productive times was when we were just using a form of money that wasn't being debased and wasn't being changed and where individuals could go and make economic calculations and be sure of what their money and savings and capital would uh, kind of be into the future. They wouldn't have to kind of guess, okay, how much is my government going to debase my currency? Because it all gets back to a very simple premise. Um, humans are simply uh, greedy. And if you give them the ability to manipulate the money, um, like we've seen throughout history, that they never manage the money in a responsible manner. Um, like, I mean, China, um, yes, they've been able to um, build out lots of infrastructure, but they've also been very, very wasteful in that build out. Like there's currently massive ghost cities in China that have been built and they simply didn't have the population or the population growth to fill those ghost cities. And they've had to go and knock the, knock the ghost cities down. Like that's kind of a Keynesian's wet dream because they, on, on paper, it looks like the GDP is exploding and growth's exploding. They're building all these new cities, but they're, 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 they're having to come in later and knock down the cities because they're empty. Mm. So it's just, it's kind of central planning always fails. And We've got over 750 examples of central planning failing. And when we look at the list of all of the fiat currencies that have failed throughout um, human history, every single one of them has collapsed and ended in a hyperinflationary event. And the best performing fiat currencies 
uh, are still alive today. And that's actually the British pound and the US dollar. And that sounds nice, you know, the best performing fiat currencies, but they've actually lost 99.99% of their value um, from when they started as well. So that would, that would, that's a very long answer and a bit of a tangent, but um, that's, that's, uh, that's my case for sound money over central planning, I suppose. No, I mean that there's there was a lot there. Uh, that was great. Yeah, um, sorry. <laughs> no, no, don't apologize at all. That's 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 great. Um, it's first off, I don't know the Romans, the most successful ever. I mean, the Brits. Come on, like the, a third yeah. of the world. <laughs> like, come on, man. Uh, I'll give you that one. <laughs> and then, I mean, then there, some people would probably argue that the modern American empire. Uh, the, yeah, well, yeah, the military industrial one is is maybe more successful monetarily at least anyway or genghis khan militarily could maybe be anyway that's 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 I, getting in a, a different direction i like the u.s example too because the u.s example um that were kind of founded on uh free market and uh, capitalist uh kind of um kind of ideology in the 1770s when it was founded and america's been one of the most successful um, empires because it tried to stay out of the money supply and not centrally plan. They embraced capitalism and that, that attracted capital from all around the world. So, hmm. um, yeah. So, um, one of the things I like that you said there, I wanted to ask you about was, do you know, like in more detail about this Roman debasing of the currency? I've never heard of that before. Like, could, could, could you talk a little bit about that and tell me a little bit what that's about? Yeah, so I did a podcast on this one with uh, Drew McMartin. He's also a fellow Bitcoiner. And we actually looked at the charts. Um, it's, it's on YouTube. So we pulled, we screenshot and had a look at the charts of um, the rate at how quickly um, the Romans began to debase uh, their silver denarius coin. Um, essentially, their empire just grew so large that by the end of it, they were struggling to pay their expanding military and um, so to compensate for that and to try and pay um, for their military, the Romans actually started debasing their coin for the first time in six or 700 years from memory. Um, it, um, so, yeah, and as, as with any currency debasement, it always starts off very slow and gradually at first. But then the, um, the more the debasement goes and the higher the inflation gets, the more rapidly you have to debase that currency um, to keep up with the expanding amount of debt. And that's obviously the, the issue with an inflationary monetary system, that it needs ever-expanding amounts of debt and ever-expanding monetary creation to keep itself going. It is essentially a Ponzi scheme. And that's why uh, you've got 750 examples of failed fiat currencies throughout history. Um, so yeah, if, if the people are interested, um, go and check that podcast out I did with Drew and Martin, because we talked about it for a good 20 or 30 minutes, just that case of the Roman empire collapsing. And we, we go through the charts of the silver denarius and this, there you go. This, this, this one of them. This looks similar. Um, emperors with no clothes. This made me laugh just cause it had Obama with the, the Caesars thing on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah. I guess they're, they're yeah they're tracking like how the how the the currency became the how the denarius became debased versus silver against uh, the dollar and um, gold. I guess that's what they're tracking and showing like yeah, so it's similar, isn't it? It it is. So you can see how so the blue lines the silver denarius. You can see it starts at nearly a hundred at fifty five AD, and see how it kind of gradually works its way down over a hundred years or so. Yeah, it, very slowly, and then at the end, it it really drops like a rock. Yeah. So that's kind of um, so what we did 
um, if you invert that chart and flip it upside down, um, it actually looks a lot like um, all of the hyperinflationary um, events throughout human history. The debasement's very slow and gradual at first, and most people don't notice the debasement when the inflation rate's at three, four, five, six, seven percent. But once inflation gets above that 10 to 15% per year, that's when the everyday person starts to um, notice that, hang on a minute, this debasement's going at a really rapid rate. Um, I need to get rid of this currency as quickly as possible. And that's where you get the, um, the really rapid debasement at the end of a fiat currency because nobody wants to hold it. Um, so do you think, is that what we're seeing now? Is that is that like is that where we're at? I mean, I yeah. I, I saw this unbelievable uh, picture today, which was brilliant, and it was like inflation is like inflation doesn't exist. No way, it's transitory. No way, it's corporate greed. No way, <laughs> it's um something else. And then no way, it's Russia. Like yeah. I was just like wow. <laughs> yeah. Like, how far? How far will they go to explain this without saying it's like? Maybe we shouldn't have printed like all that money. Maybe it's just maybe. <laughs> exactly, dude. Exactly. You've absolutely nailed it. Um, it's absolutely absurd. Um, the the excuses that they've got to blame the inflation on, whether it's supply chains or corporate greed, that's a massive one. Um, but they've never, ever, ever once blamed it on the expanding monetary supply. And that's essentially what's causing the inflation. If you increase the size of the size of the monetary supply and you don't have any extra goods and services, that's naturally going to cause goods and services to rise in price because you've got more money chasing the same amount of goods and services. Um, so... And that is, I, I think we really are kind of at the, the tipping point. Um, we're, at, we're at a stage where interest rates are at zero and we have the largest uh, debt bomb in human history. Um, I think there's, there's a really good, uh, there was a really good report done by um, someone called Hirschman Capital. Uh, they, I suppose they're a hedge fund, but they looked um, at sovereign defaults of like sovereign countries. And they found that since the year of 1800, 51 out of 52 countries that accumulated a debt to GDP ratio of greater than 130% defaulted on that debt. So you get above 130% debt to GDP, there's a 98.5% chance that you're going to default on that debt. And generally, the way that nations preferred to default was through uh, currency inflation, currency devaluation, and hyperinflation because it's much more politically uh, palatable to do that when you're in a debt um, burden. The other option is obviously austerity. And if you get to a stage where you have 400% uh, global debt to GDP ratio, and you just say, look, we're going to stop printing money. We're going to let assets and uh, uh, stock market and the housing market uh, correct to its normal value. You'd probably see an 80 to 90% correction in risk assets and you'd have a global depression like you saw in the 1930s. So the more politically palatable decision to uh, take when, when faced with that 130% debt to GDP um, Rubicon is to print your way out of it. And you simply, um, throughout history, Hirschman Capital showed that uh, central banks and governments preferred to simply devalue the money and pay back their massive debts with the devalued dollars. Um, and that's obviously where we are today around the world. Um, the US national debt is 
Uh, I think it was 138% last year. They've brought it down to about 123%, but they've still got a long, long way to go. And yeah, that's obviously what, you've that's got other I... countries like China that have uh, roughly 300% debt to GDP. Um, yeah, I was just and... pulling that up there for people. I'm not sure if you, I think you should be able to see that there um, is our, is the, the US debt to GDP ratio. So 2020, 2021 and 2022. Now it's claiming that this is, um, yeah, not that this is going down at the minute, but we're still hovering around. And then I guess these are predicted um, ones, uh, but I, yeah, it's hovering around that 130% mark as you were, uh, as you were pointing out, which is yeah, a little scary in it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And there, there's a, there's a playbook for how to deal with this debt. For central banks um like you kind of asked where are we um i would say we're at the end of an 80 year long-term debt cycle uh so ray dalio uh, has written a book uh, called big debt crisis big debt crises i pronounced that, that word a little bit wrong but he looked at how governments have defaulted throughout human history and uh generally um he has this really good video on youtube i think it's called how the economic machine works I recommend everybody should go and definitely watch that video. I've watched it four or five times and I still learn something new every single time I watch it. But he essentially just shows how an economy um, goes through these long-term debt cycles. We're all familiar with short-term debt cycles. Um, they're called recessions. And we have one of those every seven to 10 years. So everyone, obviously the coronavirus recession in 2020, um, and then obviously 10 years or so before then, we had the 2008 global financial crisis. Um, about 10 years before, about eight years before then, we had the 2000 uh, stock market uh, tech, the tech uh, bubble crash. And then obviously the 1987 stock market crash. So um, you can see they're like kind of the little pivots or the little dips along the way. They're, they come every seven to 10 years. But then every 80 years, you get to a situation where you have a very, very, very large deleveraging event. And that's where all of the excess um, investment and excess debt gets wiped out. So they come along every 80 years. And I think we're at the very, the very peak or the very top of an 80 year long term debt cycle. And we're about to witness a pretty large deleveraging event. The only question is, what what way are we going to see the deleveraging? Is it going to be through a 90 to 95% deflationary uh, crash like we saw in the 1930s? Or is it going to be more of a um, hyperinflationary kind of deleveraging uh, event where the currency is sacrificed to nominally decrease the debt levels? So um, the, there's uh, I think there's a really good quote. Um, there's there's decades where nothing happens and then there's there's days where decades happen I something weeks. like i think that. it's weeks where decades happen yeah that's the one as far that's as, I, one. as yeah as far as i remember but it's a little bit scary just thinking that we're like right sitting there on the on the precipice of things and i mean yeah it's it's one thing to be like oh the economy is going to crash and then to be like thinking right well you know maybe this is it like what's what comes next i mean the 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 answer that then people tout, obviously, including yourself, would be buy Bitcoin. And why why does that save people? Like, why does the economy crashing not just crash the value of Bitcoin? 
So Bitcoin, well, it's it's certainly Bitcoin could get caught up in a little bit of the mischief um, during the high, during the kind of um, the crash, I suppose. Um, there's a there's a really really good chart um, on Twitter. Um, I've included in most of the articles I write. Actually, it's a chart measuring the volatility of gold during the German hyperinflation event in the 1920s, um, and it actually shows that. Um, obviously the price of gold goes from like a hundred German marks to a billion German marks all in the space of five years as the German currency is hyperinflating. So you would think, okay, geez, gold performs ridiculously well in German marks. I should just go 50x leverage long gold against the German mark or even 20x leverage long gold against the German mark. But if you did that through those five years, you would have got absolutely wiped out and liquidated on five different occasions. That's because a currency collapse, um, as, as you're going through hyperinflation, it gets very, very volatile. Um, and the closer you get to the end, the more volatile it gets. And so obviously, yes, buy Bitcoin, uh, but it's and it, it could certainly, like you said, it could be kind of brought down a little bit in the crash. Um, but buying Bitcoin isn't a short-term trade or a short-term guess. It's you simply buying the money that's going to be the next uh, currency used after the fiat collapse. So throughout history, all those fiat currency collapses, we've talked about the 700 of them. The trade was when you see the inflation and when you know that the currency is going to collapse, you buy hard money, you buy sound money. So for the past 5,000 years, that's been buy gold. Buy gold and don't buy the um, paper money that the government's printing. But today's really interesting uh, because obviously Bitcoin was created in 2008 um, in response to the global financial crisis. And I would actually say it was created for for the next two years that we're going to go through. Um, So normally it would be the advice would be buy gold. Um, But today I think we have a better option. Today I think we have a form of money that can't be debased and co-opted like gold can. Is this the chart you were talking about? That's the that's the chart of the German mark going through hyperinflation. And you can see that it all happens in five years. Okay. Where should I search to find this chart that you're talking about? Because I want to see this twi- and pull this up for people. Yeah, it's a phenomenal chart. Uh, if you go to my Twitter profile, I have an article that I uh, wrote uh, that ended up being published in Bitcoin Magazine. And it's, it's pinned on my profile. It's a pretty long article, so it could be challenging uh, to find the exact picture, but it's we're gonna find in it. there. We're going to find it. Yes, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do it live on this, air, guys. That's is this the article. bull runs? Okay, we're going to find it right here. I mean, we're not technically that, live, but like, yeah. We'll do this do pre-recorded it. slash live. <laughs> we're doing it live. It's about two-thirds of the way down. So it's, um, and it's Bitcoin a little bit further down. Mark. It's really close to here. A little no. bit further. A little bit further. We're going to find it. Oh, there we is go. this it? Ah. That's the one. Whoa, holy fucking shit, man. Cool chat. That is insane. So you can see, um, I'll, I'll, talk, I'll walk the people through it. Yeah, So you please. can see in black the price. That's the price of um, gold pricing German marks. You can see in five years during the German hyperinflation, it, it, it's, it goes, it, you probably get millions of percent returns on that. So people would think, oh, I'm just going to leverage long gold. I'm going to go 50x leverage long gold. I'm going to trade this and I'm going to be an absolute genius. He's, um, as my good friend Greg Foss says, um, <laughs> you're trying to be too smart by a half. 
You've been way too smart by a half. Um, what you should do is just buy Bitcoin, um, spot Bitcoin, that's no leverage, and just hold on to it for five years. You're buying the better money because you can see the closer you get to the actual hyperinflation event, as you go through 1917, 1920, and 1923, you can see the volatility pick up. So that's um, measured in the red. So the red's measuring the percent change um, of the gold price month to month. So you can see there's about one, two, three, four, five. There's five occasions um, where you saw like a large 20, 40, 50, and there's a few 80% corrections um, in in the price of gold along the way to hyperinflation. So even if you had 2x, leveraged long on gold you would have got liquidated on multiple occasions wow that is an amazing chart man it's not mine by the way it's uh it's pinched off someone um <laughs> somebody i think it was uh larry lepard or dylan leclerc um they've both both posted on twitter so all credit to them I, i'm pretty sure i linked to them in the article but okay well I'll, I'll stick links for all this stuff in the in the description for people who want to check it out um but that's that's really wild. So you, you're saying that if people are buying Bitcoin for this, like they're gonna need, they're gonna need serious fucking diamond hands to to get through it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I think so. Um, earlier, you kind of asked where are we. Um, I think um, we now that the central banks are pretending as if they can raise rates um, and and taper their balance sheet. Um, <laughs> I think we're we're witnessing the first kind of little deflationary. Um, event or the little deflationary collapse, um, maybe the second one, um, because uh, as Greg Foss, again, my, my good friend Greg Foss would say, it's mathematically impossible for you to actually raise rates where you have a $400 trillion debt bomb. It's mathematically impossible. Governments would default on their own debt if they, were, if they allowed interest rates to raise. So they simply can't do it. We watched in 2019, Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve tried to actually go through quantitative tightening. So they tried to reduce the size of their balance sheet in 2018, I think it was. And they, they, only, they only sold like four or five or maybe $600 billion of assets off their balance sheet before the market puked. Like the S&P 500 crashed 22% over three weeks because they need all of this new extra printed money to be funneled into the markets to keep them afloat and to keep them at these elevated, overpriced um, levels. So that goes back to what I was saying earlier. You need more and more credit growth, more and more money growth to keep this large debt balloon growing and growing and growing. You can't have deflation when you've got $400 trillion of debt. So obviously the stock market sold off 22%. Jerome Powell came out and said, okay, okay, we're going back to quantitative easing and we're not going to raise rates because we simply can't do it with um, asset prices where they are. And that was obviously just before 2020. 2020 came along and we saw one of the fastest crashes in human history in the stock market. Stock market was down 35% in like 27 days. So it wasn't as large as the 1929 stock market crash, but it was faster. And obviously Jerome Powell had to walk out and um, Neil Kashkari came out and said, look, we're going to print an infinite amount of money to um, to save the financial system or as I would say, boost asset prices and make the rich richer because obviously that's what boosting asset prices does. Mm. Um, so I think um, where we are today, I think we're maybe about to watch the stock market 
I don't know, if it goes any lower to a 15 or a 20% correction, you're going to watch Jerome Powell come out and say, look, we're not really going to raise rates seven times in 2022. We can't decrease the size of our balance sheet. Uh, something popped up like this war with Russia and Ukraine. We need to start printing money again. It's not because of the the um, the balance sheet and the debt bomb. It's all because of Russia and Ukraine, or it's all because of coronavirus, mutant wave X43, Omicron sun's back, <laughs> or it's because of the supply chains. They'll have an excuse for it, but it, it that when they come out and they say, look, we can't taper, they'll have an excuse. Um, so that's where I think we are. I think we're witnessing just a little deflationary spike before obviously the trend continues um, of higher inflation and fiat currencies going down the toilet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. I was about to say, I can't wait to see Joe Biden coming out, trotting out and, and saying these things, but who knows how long he's going to last. I mean, really. Actually, I feel bad for the guy at this point. Like, I actually do. I feel like it's elder abuse. It's because it, it's not funny. That guy is not all there, man. And and you're just abuse. Like you're you're taking advantage of of an old man. Basically, yeah. the people who that's what the people who are wheeling them out are doing. They're taking advantage of an old man because they're terrified that the vice president is the most unpopular vice president in history. <laughs> <laughs> She's more unpopular than Mike Pence. How is that even possible? I, uh, uh, it shocks me. It's um, but yeah, Biden's not all there. I mean, when you shit your pants on live TV, you um, you're clearly not all there. So it's pretty absurd that he's the president of the United States. But yeah, well, um, I mean, in, we live in crazy times, my friend. Yeah, the curse of interest in times, like in it. But um, so then. Obviously, as, as you're saying, buy Bitcoin. We, we need a hedge, something that is not controlled by central governments and something that would be used uh, that will hopefully retain some sort of value in the case of a financial crash. So why is Bitcoin, BTC, that thing? Why is it not Ethereum or why is it not BCH or BSV or Dash or... <laughs> You know, I've had I've had like quite a few people on here making the cases for like different cryptocurrencies, whether that's just they're investing in them um, as an asset or whether that's that they believe they're the future of money. And quite a few people tend to like obviously prefer Bitcoin. But like, why why is that the one? Like, why why is that better than you know? Why is that better than all the rest? Yeah, so Bitcoin's the only um, the only crypto quote unquote cryptocurrency. I hate saying that word. It's so dirty. But Bitcoin's <laughs> the only crypto that um, doesn't have any rulers and can't have its monetary supply changed or can't have um, the rules changed. Um, Ethereum, for example, has had its monetary policy changed, uh, I think seven or eight times throughout history. Um, Vitalik will just um, decide to burn tokens one day. The next day he'll decide to pre-mine himself 70% of the tokens when he created it. Now they're talking about EIP 1559 and making it deflationary and ultrasound money, making it better than Bitcoin. But mm -hmm. what the Ethereum guys don't understand is um, sound money isn't just predicated upon the issuance rate. It's also predicated upon um, how easy it is to actually change the supply of the money. So I would actually argue Ethereum is not ultrasound money. I would say it's actually simply recreating the fiat system. It's just we have a, we have um, central bankers of Ethereum um, who are able to change the rules. Um, they're, they're just the new rulers in this potential technocratic uh, dystopian future. Um, they don't want a form of money where everybody operates under the same rules. They just want to be the new rulers. 
Um, so that, that, that's probably what I always go to with Ethereum. Um, and that's obviously, and because running a node is a very, very important thing in any um, cryptocurrency, the ability to run a node. Um, so the ability to run a node in Bitcoin, anybody can do it. You know, the size of the blockchain is like 300 gigabytes. Um, so I personally, I have a little Raspberry Pi. It's like a $50 um, or, two, or $100 uh, little uh, single board computer. And I run, a, I, run a, I run a node. I can verify the 13 years um, of all the Bitcoin transactions there have been in history. And I can quote unquote have a vote. It's not really the best terminology, but I can quote unquote have a vote on the Bitcoin blockchain um, and, and say, look, I'm never updating my rules um, these are the rules and I'm agreeing to this. Like this is, um, this is, these are the rules I'm agreeing to follow. But with Ethereum and with BSV in particular and Bitcoin Cash in particular, because the blockchains are so large, because they've made, um, in my opinion, fatal fundamental design errors, um, it's impossible for the everyday person to run a node unless you have like a, a five a five thousand dollar specialized computer um, in Ethereum's case to run an actual full node, not just an archival node. You need like four terabytes of um, data storage, and that's only going to grow. Um, with BSV, um, obviously they decided to increase um, the block size of of their blockchain, and that's going to make it so that it continues to centralize into the future. And it's going to get to a point where the only people who can run a node or quote unquote, have a vote on the BSV blockchain are these large wealthy elites who can afford these $10,000 specialized uh, data centers that can actually handle the throughput to um, run the BSV uh, blockchain. So I would say that all of the other cryptocurrencies probably will be co-opted by maybe wealthy bankers and wealthy elites because they'll look at it and say, oh, awesome. This is like a recreation of the fiat system where we can cozy up to the money printer and enrich ourselves and change the rules whenever we want to. Um, so I, I think, yeah, Bitcoin's the only cryptocurrency that um, has a rule set that can't be changed. And obviously we saw that in 2017 with the block size wars. We saw the wealthy bankers and the wealthy people in the Bitcoin space try to actually change the rules of Bitcoin. Uh, there's some very, very big names. Um, I think about 70 to 80% of the miners were on board for actually changing um, the um, increase in the size of the Bitcoin blocks mm -hmm. because it would have been more profitable for them. And same with all the exchanges. They were like, yes, yes, yes. Let's increase the size of the Bitcoin blocks so that we can jam more transactions into those blocks and we obviously get more users and more transaction fees. This is good. Let's let's increase the size of the Bitcoin blocks. But obviously when you do that, it makes the blockchain larger, makes it harder for the everyday person to run a node on a very cheap computer. So that would have centralized Bitcoin. Um, but obviously the free market decided that Bitcoin was the real Bitcoin. Um, and obviously all the economic money flowed to Bitcoin and not Bitcoin uh, cash and Bitcoin Satoshi's vision. Um, so... I think, yeah, that's that's my case for why Bitcoin and why all the other guys, all the other things um, aren't really as decentralized um, as they claim to be. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it's a good case, man. Um, so does that essentially mean in this case that the more people who run nodes, the better, basically, for the strength of the decentralized network? Yeah. 
Yeah, so there's an estimation that there's like 200,000 Bitcoin nodes. Obviously, it's like when you Google it, I think it will only tell you there's like 10 or 20,000 nodes because they're the public nodes. Obviously, most of these nodes connect via Tor. Um, so most of the estimations out there show that there's 150 to 200,000 Bitcoin nodes and no other cryptocurrency even comes anywhere close to that. Um, wow. Who would be the best person to talk to about that kind of thing? I could probably have a think about it. Uh, there's lots of really um, far more technical people than myself um, that float around on Bitcoin Twitter. I should always preface um, the, uh, me saying anything with that. I'm not technically proficient at all. I'm actually a computer dumbass. <laughs> uh, but there's uh, there's lots of uh, people on Twitter who definitely track that. Maybe Stefan Levera, uh, Shinobi's on Twitter. Um, I, I no more really come to mind off the top of my head, but okay. I remember looking at lots of really interesting Twitter posts about um, the node count um, in Bitcoin and compared to lots of other cryptocurrencies. Yeah, no, because I'm yeah, just uh, it's 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 occurred to me in the last. I mean, I guess the the thing that really like triggered me on it was the truckers. I was just like, governments can just switch off your bank account, man. Then they mm. will do it, and no one will say shit. Like, I, I was stunned and. And, and it's not, I don't even need to get to like how they've treated the protesters. Cause like, I mean, I have separate thoughts about that, but like just on a very basic level, I saw stories about like a woman who was like a, a, a like a single mother and she'd like donated like $50 or something to the truckers. It was totally legal at that point. There was no orders against it. There was nothing like wrong with her donation. It was like not condemned, not illegal. Like she just gave them some of her money and she had her bank account frozen. And I was like, are we going to say that's okay? Or are we going to be so silent about this? Or are we I, like, I've no idea what the reason for the, just the lack of outrage about that sort of thing happening. But like, I mean, maybe we're all just distracted with Russia, which could be it. Like to be fair, but um, I was like, we need we need something decentralized. We need something that is not just like for, able for the government to switch it off, because like it's clear that technology and centralization has made them far too powerful. And I'm trying to figure out basically what the like is everyone i speak to about bitcoin right says that like they're all very positive about it obviously i mean most of them are very 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 um maximalist on its potential about it's like price <laughs> price targets and i'm like right okay like i get it but you all own bitcoin right so i can't i can't take you totally 100 percent seriously i need to figure out like what it is exactly that makes this thing unfuckable with like, and that is what it needs to be for me to, to, to like, be like, right, okay, I'm in 100%. Give me everything I can possibly get. Because I have some, right? Because I'm like, I still, I buy the arguments enough to go and buy some. <laughs> but I'm still, like, like do you, do you believe it's genuinely, like, as long as something, like, uh, unforeseeable doesn't happen, that, like, the government, like, the, like, shouldn't be able to come and fuck with our Bitcoin, basically? Like, is that, can they get their hands on it and can they shut it down, do you think? So they, um, a lot to unpack there, lots of really interesting <laughs> points. Um, yeah, sorry, I, think I the, tend to do that. No, no, it's great. I love it. I love it. Um, I've been I've been ranting and raving heaps in this interview already. Um, I think um, the first 
the um so i don't think governments can come and get it no um i i really don't think think they can um and i think if they could i think they will and they would i mean we've seen that uh, for example, with DeFi, that's something I wanted to bring up earlier. Um, DeFi came out and marketed itself as, look, we're fully decentralized. Governments can't stop us. And we've seen like the largest decentralized exchange, Uniswap, bend the knee to the government um, and delist like 100, 100 protocols. We've also seen these other blue chip, quote unquote, decentralized um, lending protocols like Aave and Compound come out with KYC version of versions of their applications. So obviously the only value they had was um, providing services um, non-KYC in a quote unquote decentralized form. Um, but obviously the government taps them on the shoulder and says, look, boys, <laughs> you can't do that. We, uh, if we, we, we can change the rules because you guys aren't actually decentralized. Uh, so that's one point. And I think um, we're going to see that trend continue. We're going to see the government going and talk to Vitalik and telling him to change the rules. And I think the government's going to try it and come after Bitcoin. I really do. Um, and I personally just fleed Australia I'm preparing for that, uh, for that possible <laughs> fight. Obviously, I hope that it's a very smooth transition. I personally hope that governments adopt Bitcoin, but there are some countries that look to be posturing uh, more friendly towards Bitcoin. I think the United States is probably going to be one of those. Um, I think Latin American countries is probably going to be another. Um, so I'd prefer to be in parts of the country that uh, parts of the world that are favorable to Bitcoin. Um, I think countries like uh, the EU, um, uh, I hate to say it, but maybe the UK and maybe mm -hmm. Europe in particular, definitely Europe, I think, mm -hmm. and China, obviously, they're probably not going to adopt Bitcoin the earliest or the soonest. I think they're definitely going to fight it. But this gets back to one of your uh, points you made there. What can they do to it? I, they can't do anything in my mind. The only thing they can do is slow down the inevitable. So I, it doesn't matter for it. Bitcoin's going to be $50 million a coin in today's dollars. So it's before hyperinflation. Bitcoin will be $50 million a coin. It's the only question for me is how long that takes. Is it going to be 2025? Is it going to be 2030 or 2035? I, I don't think I'd be surprised if it's anything other than those kind of timeframes. And that's obviously because like if you saw something like a globally coordinated uh, crackdown on Bitcoin, where every single country decides to ban Bitcoin, it's going to slow adoption. Speculators are going to leave the market, but the Bitcoin protocol is going to be absolutely unchanged and unfazed. The Bitcoin protocol is going to keep doing its thing. There's 200,000 nodes around the world that are going to continue um, verifying transactions and receiving transactions in their mempool. And there's going to be miners, especially off-grid miners, that are going to continue um, processing those transactions because they collect the transaction uh, fees for doing so. And if you can do it off-grid in an anonymous way, like the Bitcoin protocol is absolutely unfuckable. Unless you can go and knock on the door of every single one of those anonymous 200,000 nodes and shut them down simultaneously at the same time without another node spinning up somewhere else with a copy of the blockchain on it. <laughs> Bitcoin is unstoppable. And you can even broadcast transactions uh, without the internet using these uh, hand radio satellites. There's a, I can't, I, no I watched way. a video of someone doing it on Twitter the other day. I can't remember if it was NVK or Dan Held, but one of those guys was broadcasting transactions offline 
um, using a hand radio kind of satellite setup. Because a lot of people say, oh, what happens if the government turns the internet off? Bitcoin's dead. Well, no, Bitcoin's not dead. The 13-year the um, list of transactions, um, the blockchain is still well and truly intact. Um, it's just a little bit inefficient with the internet off. And I would argue with the internet off, um, the, the current legacy system would suffer just as much. Obviously, you can't access your bank. So um, good luck with that. Um, so I think it's for me, it all comes down to what happens. If governments are kind of, if there's a little bit of a to in and fro in with Bitcoin um, and they, they don't fully come after and ban it, I think we're looking at a $10 million Bitcoin before 2030. I really do. I think, I think it's, um, um, I think it's probably more like fifty million dollars of Bitcoin before twenty thirty, um, and that's it. Like if if this the is all if great the trend confirmation of... bias, man. This What's is, that? Sorry? This is just beautiful confirmation bias. Like it's like feed me more. <laughs> like I want it. I, I this is what I want. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Um, I'm sure we can get into the a little bit of a moon math calculation in a minute, but um, yeah, for me, just on this point, while we're on it, it's 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 just. I, yeah, it, it doesn't, for me, it's just a matter of timing. Bitcoin is inevitable. Um, and I think it all goes back to that quote, there is nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. And I think we've watched 5,000 years of currency collapses and monetary debasement. And I think the idea of an immutable, unseizable, um, unfuckable sound money is a really powerful and revolutionary idea. And I think it's the thing that we're going to use to separate money from state and I think as hard as the state may try to squash it, Bitcoin is like a honey badger. It just doesn't give a fuck. And you can't squash this cockroach. I think Bitcoin will succeed. Is this why dictators are so adamantly against it? Like I've seen, so China banned it. Russia seemed to be, they, they've had a weird stance to it. But then I've seen a couple of other dictators try, um, start to ban it. And then I'm watching the global financial elite suddenly realize how fucking huge this thing is. And I don't think they, I don't think they knew. I think they were arrogant and blind and they're like, Oh, this through little internet money. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you, I can, I can see it. No, it'll be, it'll be some guy in, in like, <laughs> In, in the be you know obviously cigar smoke filled dark back room and the the, the big cigar will come out and like the guy whose neck you know doesn't even fit in his shirt blah, 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 you know <laughs> <laughs> this bitcoin the thing <laughs> yeah it's ridiculous yeah. some some gentleman bought a pizza with it and then uh, <laughs> <laughs> internet money yeah it's fagazi it's wazi yeah, but so is fiat, you know. This is this yeah. is the concept that I still can't get into people's head. But I mean, uh, yeah, is because the, the other one I keep citing to people is Hillary Clinton, the the woman who who deleted all her emails by accident is now claiming to come out and be a. a she's like, we need to regulate Bitcoin. It's dangerous. And I'm like, yes, you you understand. That's totally that's it. You know, uh, you I believe that. Um, but like, is is it is the like. Are these leaders aware, do you think, of how dangerous the idea is? Or are they kind of just going, well, are they just trying to shut it out before anything happens? Yeah, so I think, um, so I definitely, I think they thought it was a joke for the last 10 years. 
Um, and I actually think it was too far and too widely distributed in 2013 when Silk Road got shut down. I think maybe that put it um, on their radars. Um, Cause I can remember there's a really early conversation in 2010 or 2011 from Satoshi um, where Julian Assange was using, I think it was Julian Assange was using Bitcoin to escape uh, the governments because he got all his bank accounts frozen mm-hmm. and Satoshi um I think from like my memory is a little bit scratchy, but I think Satoshi was like, no, no, no. Um, don't, don't gloat about being able to escape sanctions. Um, this is, this is not good. Bitcoin's too, still too early and too young. The government could potentially come in and cause us some trouble and some harm. Um, be quiet, Julian, be quiet. And that was uh, rumored to be why Satoshi actually left when he did. Uh, because I think Satoshi went offline around that same time. He was actually uh, worried. and But obviously uh, Silk Road came along and I think maybe that popped it into the minds of governments and they realized it was probably too late to squash it then in 2013, I think, when Silk Road went down. So um, I think it's definitely far too widely distributed at the moment, but I think it's certainly becoming to get on uh, the radars of lots of different governments around the world today. Um, and I think to your other point, um, they're about dictators hating it. Um, that's exactly right. China hates it because it, um, essentially China is a communist dystopian and it controls its people. Um, and Bitcoin is the complete opposite of that. Bitcoin's freedom money. Uh, nobody controls Bitcoin. Um, so obviously dictatorships aren't going to like that. Um, and obviously most central bankers around the world shouldn't like that. Um, even the United States, um, they're the most kind of quote unquote free country around the world. Um, but obviously, um, I think they're starting to realize that um, adopting Bitcoin is probably going to be the best decision for the United States and the US dollar's uh, global hegemon power as the global reserve currency. Um, that's another rabbit hole we could certainly go into. But <laughs> I think it's interesting as well because a lot of people call Naib Bekele a dictator, uh, but he's a, he's adopted Bitcoin. Um, so it's, it's very, very interesting to watch how the geopolitical dominoes will fall over the coming years yeah it was particularly inspiring to watch a country buy the dip um you know like an actual nation like i and i really in my head i really really hope that they were in like the treasury department or in like the the financial department of um yeah the el salvadorian government and someone like they've got like, like on a big screen like the bitcoin price and then, like, it started, like, it was tanking and, the, like, everything was in red and it hits, like, I don't know, whatever their, their their buy price is, like, 38K or 39K. And someone hits this big button that says, like, buy the dip and then all these big buy the dip alarms go off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, like, oh, I really, I really hope that that's true. I mean, it it's unlikely, but I, I hope at least somebody slammed their fist on the table and said, buy the dip. Um, but... <laughs> I don't think it's that unlikely. Um, when Bitcoin was crashing, Naive Bekele was on Twitter and he was saying, we're buying the dip. He was literally posting that on Twitter as Bitcoin oh. was crashing and tanking. So it's pretty amazing to watch. What a legend. I mean, yeah. And, and it's just funny. It's like, I mean, do you, the, the my real question then is like, so we, we've, yeah, we've talked on about, yeah, the, the debasement of, of currencies, about like the power that Bitcoin can have to 
to be decentralized, to be not controlled by governments, for them to not like be able to get their hands on it, to be able to transact offline, peer to peer, without the need for a government. Like that's so fucking huge. Like, you know, that, yeah, that's huge. And then I just I look at it and go like, this isn't good. Like these people won't go peacefully. You know, like the the dollar and the 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 pound and the the euro and the, they're all just like like bank robbers who have taken the the like the the world government's hostage basically and like like they're not gonna go peacefully man like do you think that there's because I get worried about how this goes down because like I love like the idea of where we're going right like freedom you know free yeah freedom money not controlled by central governments central banks a, a like a way in which we can have a society and a democracy in which we can all live without the horrendous predatory financial system that would be just beautiful um and but i just i'm like how does this is do you see it going peacefully in any is there a scenario in which this doesn't descend into utter madness <laughs> Okay, so yeah, I personally don't think uh, governments are going to go quietly into the night. Um, I obviously have my fingers and toes crossed that they will. I think that would be amazing to watch them kind of um, go quietly into the night. Um, but I think there's certainly a possibility they're going to attack Bitcoin. And I would argue over the past two years, we've already watched or we're watching a nation state level attack on Bitcoin. We've watched the largest country with probably the largest or the second largest military um, ban Bitcoin mining in its country and all transactions. And it kicked out 60% of the Bitcoin miners out of its country. And obviously that was China. Um, we've watched um, other countries such like we watched the European Union come out and attempt to ban privately held wallets. Um, countries like France have banned proof of work mining because they simply don't understand the energy revolution that Bitcoin's going to create. Um, we've watched lots of countries be very negative towards Bitcoin. Um, I think we're kind of watching that battle and that fight. But for every country that's negative and tries to ban Bitcoin, you watch another country that kind of adopts Bitcoin or sees that other country banning it. And that country thinks, oh, right, we actually get an economic advantage if we're uh, friendly to Bitcoin in our regulation. So I think El Salvador's kind of started that trend. And since El Salvador's made Bitcoin legal tender, we've watched lots of other countries watch that decision and say, hang on a minute, I want a piece of that pie. If I'm friendly to Bitcoin and quote unquote crypto, um, obviously those Bitcoiners are going to come to my country and they're going to bring their capital, their wealth and their businesses and they're going to set up in my country and um, increase the, the economy, the increase the GDP in, inside our country. So I think we're going to continue to watch this kind of battle and to and fro. We're going to watch countries like China and like the European, European Union and Bitcoin will be very unfavorable um, towards it in terms of regulations. And we're going to watch other countries like El Salvador or Ukraine or um, Brazil and Panama. And there's a little city in Switzerland talking about adopting Bitcoin the other day. We're going to watch all of these, um, what I'm going to call uh, small um, nation states or free private cities pop up and say, look, we're friendly to Bitcoin. Bring your money over here. If China's kicking you out, Come to us, <laughs> come set up your businesses in our countries. I think we're going to continue to watch that. 
Um, and I think if we continue to see the trend that we've seen over the past two years, where Bitcoin's been in this battle amongst nations, I, I, I don't think these little bands and these little regulations are doing enough to slow down Bitcoin adoption. I actually personally think um, we're watching over the past two years, I, I actually think we're, we're watching nation states quietly buy Bitcoin. I just don't think they're announcing it. Um, I, I think there's one chart that kind of... Yeah, I think there's one chart that suggests exactly that. Um, for the first time in Bitcoin's 13-year history, um, coins have been moved to exchanges. So Bitcoin started off as a peer-to-peer -peer network. There was actually no exchanges in the beginning. Exchanges popped up around, I can't remember, 2012, 2013, 2014. Exchanges started to grow. And as they started to grow, the balance or the amount of Bitcoins on exchanges uh, grew. So there's actually one chart in that article we were looking at earlier um, from the German hyperinflation. And it shows the amount of Bitcoins on exchanges just increases for the first 13 years of Bitcoin's life. It goes up in a straight line um, until 2020. 2020 happened and something fundamental changed in the Bitcoin market. Um, it was almost as if the money printing woke up the largest and the smartest individuals um, that are operating in the economy. Because since 2020 happened, the total amount of Bitcoin on exchanges has actually decreased from 3.1 million coins all the way down to something like 2.3 million coins on exchanges today. So we've watched something like 30 to 35% of the total available Bitcoin on exchanges decrease. And it's people ask, where's it gone? Well, it's left the exchanges and it's gone to the wallets um, or addresses um, of Bitcoiners who don't have a history of selling their Bitcoin. So when we're talking about on-chain uh, analytics and fundamentals, um, they classify this kind of holder or this kind of entity as a long-term holder. So we can see since 2020, the amount of long-term holders has increased dramatically and it's at an all-time high. Um, so I personally think that is very large institutions, very large high net worth individuals simply accumulating Bitcoin quietly and not announcing it. Um, and I think we're going to get into a very interesting scenario where there's simply no Bitcoins left on exchanges. And I love the looks of that chart you've pulled up there. Is this the one you were talking about? So that's more of a zoomed in chart. Um, okay. The, there were other yeah, ones. The, the, There's one. Is this is this the longer version? That's the one. That okay. is the one. So you can see for the first 13 years, look at that yellow line just grow. It just it grows. If that chart zoomed out all the way to the beginning of Bitcoin's life, it just continues to go up until there, until 2020, when you had the 2020 COVID stock market crash. That the yellow line has continued to go down. And even that large 55% correction after the China mining ban, um, it, we only saw a little small uptick of coins on exchanges. It was only 50 to 100,000 coins got sent to exchanges. But then again, the downtrend has continued at a, at a um, rapid rate. So I think that right there, that's the one chart that suggests for me personally, I think we're watching nation state um, adoption. And okay. we've... I, I'd be very interested to see if that trend continues for the next two years or 18 months and the amount of coins on exchanges, it's down to 1.5 million or even 1 million coins on exchanges. I think there could be a FOMO for Bitcoin because 
people will start to understand what Bitcoin is and they'll take it off exchanges into self-custody and they'll stop sending it to exchanges to sell. So um, I think it's going to be the supply shock of a, um, of a lifetime. Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll, we'll see what, what happens with it. Um, so I, I have one more question for you because it is uh, yeah almost two o'clock in the morning here. So <laughs> <laughs> I love the dedication. That's awesome. Yeah, man. I mean, I got uh, yeah I find time when I can, and and yeah, I got a lot on my plate, but I got I I, I enjoy this too much to to not uh, keep it going, and uh, I have too many amazing plans and great guests lined up for the the coming months for to let it slide by the wayside. So. The last thing is about my favorite topic, basically, and uh, Ben uh, Worman's favorite topic, I believe, as well, probably, which is GameStop. So I assume you've spoken to him about this at some point. I'm sure he's maybe mentioned it. Oh, I've been in his ear. Don't you worry. <laughs> so what is your take like, on, on the whole GameStop situation? Like, What do you think? Like, Are the people who are buying and holding, are, are we insane? Like, is that, is that a mad thing to be at? um because we think we think that well i say we i also i'm not i'm yeah i'm not sure which is a better hedge actually that's a good point but people buying gamestop believe that's the hedge not bitcoin what do you think yeah um so firstly i would say maybe 2 a.m um where you are it's only uh 6 p.m where i am but if we're looking at the two different camera setups, it looks as if I'm the one that's operating in the 2 a.m. darkness <laughs> because the sun's actually set where I am and I haven't got up to turn my light on. So I apologize for my horrible lighting. Anyone who's listening on YouTube, uh, it looks like I'm the one at the uh, 2 a.m. setup. But GameStop, I so I think you guys are really smart. I think you guys have absolutely nailed um, like, I mean, the forensic analysis of who was short GameStop and AMC, I think the Redditors were geniuses. I think you guys, you guys picked the right trade. And for the, for the first time in 50 years, it was actually an example of people using good fundamental analysis um, to create a short squeeze and buy the right stock where they should. I think it was amazing. Um, but I, I, like I'm on your side. I think you're doing great things. I think you're bringing down the system. Um, and the same with the silver squeeze. I think that's genius. Um, but this gets back to governments and big central banks being able to change the rules. We saw, I think it was a GME or AMC where well, you guys were actually sending some of those large hedge funds bankrupt. And there was a call from the White House to Robin Hood. And they said to them, look, guys, you need to shut this down. This is going to cause an economic crisis. You need to go in there and you need to confiscate the open trades of Robinhood traders who are long GME. And you need to turn off the buy button on GME because it's going to break the entire financial system. So it's just another example of um, these rulers and these people in control of the monetary system being able to change the rules um, of the game and i think it's tragic i i think it was i'm with you guys i think it was absolutely unfair um, but i think um for me that's why it's not a hedge um because it's simply even if you guys do manage to short squeeze these guys and blow up the financial system even if they don't call call the white house next time around and there's another short squeeze that's engineered 
you guys could on paper be ridiculously profitable, but if you blow up the financial system, um, <laughs> are they going to let you take your profits off the exchanges and actually get it into your hands? Or when you blow up the financial system, is everything going to freeze and you're going to get a bank holiday like you did in um, 2008 global financial crisis? Literally, the entire financial system was hours away from freezing. And because when it blows up, when the economic system blows up, everything ceases to function. So that means banks freeze, banks don't have money to give to depositors. And it would be the same with stock trading platforms. I would, I obviously I'm just predicting or assuming what would happen in this scenario, but I think it would be very difficult to get your profits off the exchanges, even if the White House didn't call Robin Hood next time around. And even if you guys did um, short squeeze the big banks and the um, hedge funds. So, uh, for me personally, that's why it's not a hedge. Um, and that's why Bitcoin on exchanges isn't a hedge either. If you own GBTC or if you have Bitcoin on exchanges, I personally think that's the exact same as holding AMC or GME or any stock or paper gold or paper silver. If it's not in your physical possession, it's not yours and it's not a hedge. Um, like I think there's a scenario where governments... Um, could confiscate Bitcoins off exchanges because it's a national security risk for them to not have Bitcoin in their treasury reserves. So I think they could go to exorbitant lengths to accumulate Bitcoin. Um, so that's another whole rabbit hole and conversation in and of itself. But that's why for me, AMC and GME um, isn't a hedge. Well, I mean, people people will totally agree with the, the latter statement there that AMC is not a hedge. Although there might be people watching who have bought and still hold AMC and I wish you all the best of luck. Um, I think it's probably not going to happen, but I mean, you never know. There's, there's, yeah, there's, there's weird correlations between how that stock and GameStop have performed over the last year. It's obviously not a perfect correlation, but it's some weirdly, weirdly similar patterns tracking. And like, it's just, I have no idea what to make of it. You know, I just see the thing and I'm like, that's interesting. Like, but what does that mean? You know, I, it's like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know enough <laughs> to, to tell you what that means. But I also need to check out if it was the White House that called uh, Robin Hood, because as far as I'm aware, it was a a three thirty email from the DTCC um, that told them they didn't tell them to turn off the buy button. They basically this because there's the there's a lawsuit that's like the the this is the the yeah the center of a whole bunch of controversy. So basically, the DTCC sent an email saying, "Hey lads, these these all these positions are really wildly." you know uh volatile and because of the t plus two settlement system you're gonna have to post like some obscene amount of money i can't remember right now because it's 2 a.m and then they were like uh we don't have that and then they were like oh well you know it's kind of discretionary so we can you can we can fiddle around with this and eventually they negotiated it down to like 700 million and then they got like a cash infusion from some some big uh, big players and, and there were suggestions that maybe Citadel were involved, but there's been no proof that they had definitely given them the money, as far as I was aware. And then the apparently they the NSCC, which is the clearing company, which is the one that's involved in it, had waived all capital requirements for margin calls and things like that, so that the, technically they shouldn't have had to pay any extras. 
um which is like and that's an official document like it's there's so many weird things going on and no one really knows why they turned off the buy button they claim it was because it would help reduce the volatility rating that was meaning that they were being asked to post such huge sums of money but yeah it's it's a clusterfuck. We'll find out in due course. Hopefully the DOJ investigation will provide some some light on the situation. And um, I enjoy very much being called a conspiracy theorist right up to the point where, where the criminal investigations begin. And I can just walk around being like, ah, fuck you. Um, it's it's quite lovely. <laughs> you and me both, brother. Uh, all Bitcoin is a big called conspiracy theorist at some point or time, but... I think it's more um, instead of being a conspiracy theorist, I think everything that was con- a conspiracy theory in 2020 has just turned out to be fact. So I call conspiracy theorists uh, fortune tellers these days. So um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. But um, you've clearly gone down that rabbit hole a whole lot further <laughs> than I have with the AMC and the GME. That's very interesting. Well, um, I'm writing but- a book about it. So, I mean, I kind of have to. Um... That's, that's Oh, awesome, yeah. I didn't know dude. if you knew that. Yeah. So I'm writing a book about, about this. So, um yeah, I mean, draft one is done. <laughs> awesome, dude. That's yeah. sweet. Yeah, I, I'm really excited to um, read that one day for sure. Oh, baby, um, but that's still the that's still for me. That's the biggest thing that stops me from going further down the AMC and GME rabbit hole. It's um, it's can they and will they turn off the buy button again in the future? It doesn't matter what reason it's for, whether it's you know this email or whether it was the White House or whether it was because of capital requirements. I think the fact that Robin Hood did for me is an indication that there's too many, there's too much questions or there's too much um, uncertainty in that likelihood or scenario to have too much of my net worth. Um, on an exchange where I need to trust um, mm. the stockbroker like Robinhood to respect my trade and actually return me my money um, when I do win that trade. Because you guys, economically, you, you're going to win the trade. You guys have it, you have it engineered perfectly. You are going to create a short squeeze again. It's just whether or not the rules are changed at the end. So for me, for Bitcoin, I'm 100% sure that there's enough, I'm always going to have my share of that 21 million bitcoin supply because um nobody can take it from me yeah yeah nobody can but it's i hold my bitcoin so nobody can change the rules of bitcoin but nobody can confiscate my bitcoin like i have my bitcoin set up in a way that somebody needs to take me to two different countries for me to even be able to sell a large portion of my actual bitcoin you can store bitcoin in a multi-signature arrangement where somebody could walk into my house tomorrow, put a gun to my head and say, look, give me all your Bitcoin. I know you're a Bitcoiner. And I could literally say to them, look, mate, I can't sell most of my Bitcoin. You need to take me to Australia so I can go get my other private keys to sign a transaction with Bitcoin. Like that's how much faith and security there is around my Bitcoin holdings. With my AMC and GME shares, I don't have that same security. I need to trust the stockbroker to actually give me my money back when when I want it. Um, and that's that's for me why Bitcoin is the edge. Well, I mean, I yeah, you you make a very compelling case. So um <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, do you wanna do you want to point people towards your podcast and some of your work here before we wrap up? Yeah, um firstly do Josh, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute treat. 
Um, I'm, I'm sitting here in the dark. We've been talking for so long, but I've absolutely um, enjoyed this chat. It's been phenomenal. So thanks for having me on, firstly. Um, yeah, I so most people can find me on Twitter. Um, my name is uh, Luke Mikic21 on Twitter. I'm sure that could be down in the description below. I'm, I'm on there 24-7, so come hit me up. Um, and I have a, a podcast that I co-host with my friend, Corey Tusick, um, from who's also in America, and that's called uh, the Bitcoin Made Simple podcast. And we have lots of conversations about Bitcoin and all sorts of other things surrounding macroeconomics, inflation, hyperinflation, uh, conspiracy theories, uh, COVID rants. You get it all <laughs> on there. So um, that's where you guys can find me. Wonderful. Um, yeah, man. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. So so thanks for chatting to me. It's uh been a lot of fun and like you said links for everything have been in the description so yeah no the pleasure's mine it's been amazing thanks so much for having me and it's really nice to meet you josh yeah man thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast if you want to leave us a comment that would be awesome please like share subscribe and if you're listening on apple please leave us a review until next time thanks for listening